What do you expect the Christian life to be like? Well, I suppose that's too broad a question. Let's narrow it down. What do you expect the Christian life to be like in the area of sin and obedience? Some people expect that the Christian life will be perfection. Uh, We won't be troubled by sin anymore. We won't sin anymore. Well, that sounds wonderful. But actually, ironically, such people tend to be miserable because they don't achieve this perfection. They think something's gone wrong. They're always grasping after something that they don't manage to grab. Some people expect, well, we're just the same as everyone else except forgiven. Just forgiven sinners. No more, no better than forgiven sinners. And such people are continually missing out on what the Christian life should be like. We need to get our expectations right for the Christian life, particularly in this area of sin and obedience. And not least because if we get it wrong, we start to get doubts about whether we're really Christians or not. Our expectations affect our assurance of whether we are real Christians or not. We're going to work on this area of our expectations and our assurance using 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. Would you come with me, please, to 1 John chapter 2 and verses 3 to 6. We're in a series going through 1 John. It's a letter that tells us expectations for the Christian life. It's a letter that explicitly tells us it's written so you may know you have eternal life. And we're going to go through verses three to six of chapter two. And we're going to do it in three sections. We're going to start out broad, a bit of a Bible study, working out how this fits into the letter. Then we're going to narrow down to what does verses three to six tell us about obedience. Then we're going to narrow down further to more closely what is meant by this obedience. So let's start broad. What is John doing here in this letter? I want you to do some Bible study to see if you can figure out how chapter two, verses three to six fits with what John is doing in his letter. So John starts his letter with two fundamental truths that everything is based on. Can you see if you can spot them? Two fundamental truths that everything in his letter is based on. I'll read you chapter one, verses one to five. Look for the two truths. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Now, did you spot there two truths that the rest of John's letter will be based on? And the clue is foundational truths tend to be truths about God. Spot two, 
They were these. First of all, Jesus has revealed God. That's verses one to four. The eternal has appeared. Jesus has revealed God. And the second one is in verse five. Very obvious. It is God is light. Now, the rest of one John flows out of these two truths. And it's all showing us how these two truths should shape our lives. And that leads to three tests of whether you know this God who is revealed by Jesus and is light. Three tests of do you really know him? Do you really belong to him? Can you spot these tests? Now, this is where, Philip, I need you to put up on the screen three verses for people to look at. And they are chapter three, verse nine. Chapter four, verse seven and chapter five, verse one. I'm hoping. Here we go. There they are on the screen. So I'm not going to read these to you. Can you have a look at them? Chapter three, verse nine. Chapter four, verse seven. Chapter five, verse one. Can you see three tests of having eternal life? Three, verse nine, four, verse seven and five, verse one. Have you spotted three tests? Now, uh, these tests are across the whole letter repeatedly. In fact, the letter is like a spiral that keeps on going over the same ground, but at a different level. Think of John's gospel like that, a spiral. Um, But I I chose those three verses because they, they each put it a particular way. Here are tests of whether you are born of God. And so that, I hope, made it easier to spot Because the verse is told us if you are born of God, you will obey him. You will love your fellow Christians and you will believe certain truths about Jesus, the Christ. Obedience, love and belief. They are the three tests that you have eternal life, that you belong to God, that you are born again, that John puts repeatedly across his letter. Now, they are not three separate tests. I said they're a spiral. Maybe they're more like a rope made of three strands that are woven together and they keep on appearing in his letter. As we move up the rope, you keep seeing these tests appear again and again intertwined. Because if you obey, you will love because God's commands are about love. And if you believe, then you will love and obey because you'll follow the Jesus who leads you into love and obedience. So here's my next question for you. Why is John writing a letter with these tests of whether you belong to God? What's prompted it? Well, one of the reasons is the church had been troubled by false teachers, false teachers who'd now left the church, but they'd left the church rather confused. So the church John is writing to, or maybe it's a little group of churches in a particular area, are probably saying things like this. John, didn't you tell us that everyone who believes has eternal life? And by definition, if you have eternal life, you can't lose it. Didn't you say that all who believe are kept safe in the hands of the good shepherd? 
We can read that in John's gospel. Well, then, what about these people who've left us? They say they believe, but they don't look like they've got eternal life. What about them? How do they fit in? Have they lost eternal life? You told us that's not possible. And so John says, chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. He's saying their leaving shows they didn't have eternal life in the first place. You can't lose eternal life. And that they've walked out on the church of Christ shows they didn't have it in the first place. They made impressive claims, but their claims were false and dangerous. And having those dangerous people with dangerous claims around means John needs to give these people some health tests. He gives them some health tests. It's like a bit like a coronavirus test. I'm told it's unpleasant to have a swab stuck in the back of your mouth and then up your nose. So why would you have one? Well, because there are infections around and you need to check you've not been infected. And also to reassure you if you are healthy and safe, it will reassure you. Well, it's very similar in one John. It's to check you've not been infected by these false claims and dangerous people. And it's to reassure you if you have eternal life. Well, that was trying to show you how chapter two, verses three to six fits into the letter and trying to then show you how the letter fits together. Now let's get into verses three to six. So here's the second part of the sermon, the obedience test. These verses, verses three to six, focus on the first test. How do you know if you have eternal life? You will obey God. And here we're given reasons why the Christian will obey God. We'll get more later. And he's already given some in chapter one. Remember, I said it's like this spiral. It keeps coming back to the same subject. But here we're given. Well, I'm going to point out two reasons why the Christian will obey God. First of all, if you know God, you will obey him. If you know him, then you will obey him. Verses three and four. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Now, it it talks about knowing him. Is this him, God or Jesus? Well, I think it's more likely to be Jesus because verse two has just been talking about Jesus. Because verse six connects him with Jesus Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. It connects him with Jesus. So I think it's most likely to be Jesus. But actually, it doesn't really matter. If you are familiar with one John and John's gospel, you'll know that John makes clear the only way of knowing the father, God, is by knowing Jesus. And if you know Jesus, then you definitely know God, the father. So it doesn't really matter which one it is. The point is, if you know God through the Lord Jesus, you will obey him. And John can assert that because knowing God isn't just knowing about him. 
knowing God is a knowing of entering into relationship with him. And it's a relationship of love, of delight, of respect. It's a relationship of just not just knowing about him, but knowing him. In fact, it's what verse five, I think, refers to as loving God. Verse five, the NIV puts it as God's love. It's actually literally the love of God. And I think it's likely to mean our love for God. Our love for God is the same thing as verse four and three are talking about. It's knowing God, because if you know this God, you will love him. You can't know him and not love him. He is just so loving. He is just so lovely. He is just so amazing. And you can't have that loving knowledge of God and carry on with disregard for what God says. Here's a little example. It's just a silly little example, but I hope it helps. Children, I hope you go to your lessons at school. Uh, When I was... At secondary school, I bunked RE lessons. Now, I don't know if children talk about bunking lessons anymore. So what it means is everyone else is going off to RE and I quietly slipped away, found myself somewhere in the school, unseen by teachers and did what I wanted instead of going to RE lessons. Now, that might seem funny to you, a minister bunking RE lessons. Well, I shouldn't have done. I'm sorry it was wrong. I got caught. I got into trouble. Rightly so. I bunked the RE teacher's lessons, but I didn't bunk the history teacher's lessons. Why? I knew both teachers in the sense of knowing about them. But I knew the history teacher in this sense. I respected him. I actually liked him and I wanted to hear what he said. So I went to his lesson and I did what he said. I knew the RE teacher. Well, I knew about her, but I didn't respect her. And I didn't like her and I didn't want to hear what she said. And I didn't think our lessons were any good. And so I didn't turn up to them, which was very naughty. Now, the knowing God that John is talking about here isn't just knowing about him. It's that respecting. It's that wanting to listen to him. It's that loving him sort of knowing. And if you know God in that Bible sense, oh, well, of course you obey him. Now, there's another thing that this shows up, but I hope you see it, which is this. Underlying John's letter is that Christianity is a living, experienced thing. It's the work of God in the heart. It's God's truth sinking deep into you. That's why he talks in verse uh, four, is it, about the truth? Yes, the verse four, whether the truth is in us. Christianity is not just I agree in my head to the Bible. Christianity is not just I turn up and fit in at church. It's a living relationship. And it will make you obedient. Here's the second reason why the Christian will be obedient. Because if you are in Jesus, you will walk with Jesus. Verse six. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, see again, being a Christian is described in spiritual terms. It's a spiritual thing. It's not just identifying with this religion. It's not just taking on the label Christian. It's being in Christ. Uh, Do you remember last Sunday morning? 
It's like a branch being in the vine. And if you are in Christ, verse six says, well, you must walk like Christ. Now, what does it mean by walk? What do you walk like? People walk in all sorts of ways, don't they? Sometimes you can recognize someone coming up the street. Oh, that person's walking like so-and-so. Oh, it is so-and-so. What does it mean to walk? It means the direction of your life. It means the manner of your life. It, It means the way you usually live. And it tells us here, if you're in Jesus, you must walk like him. It's rather obvious. Here again is a silly little example. Children, have you ever done a three-legged race? Quite fun, actually, a three-legged race. You have one leg tied to one leg of another person. You put your arm around that person, they put their arm around you, and off you go. And uh, it's quite hard work, actually. And you have to go at the same pace. And of course, you've got to go in the same direction. You can't have one going one way and the other the other way. And you've got to work at doing it together. And if you get it wrong, you come to a stop. Or worse, you fall over. And if you've got a good, strong partner, hopefully he'll help you up and help you along in his direction with him setting the pace. And that's a little picture of the Christian life. Like that three-legged race, but much more securely, The Christian is united to Jesus and he is by far the stronger partner. And yes, sometimes we try to turn away and sometimes we fall over. But thank God, literally, thank God, we have that stronger partner who, if we're united to him, he'll lift us up and he'll set us back on the right way. And he'll have his spirit controlling us. If you're in him, you must, in the end, walk as he walks. Although we sometimes turn and we sometimes fall, we will overall walk as he walked. Now, remember the aim of all of this. What's the aim of this sermon? What's the aim of one John? It isn't a get on and do this message. It isn't a pull your socks up, come on and do it message. It is a have you got this message? These aren't instructions to try harder. These are tests of living Christianity. Do you have it? And notice the we know language in verse three. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And notice it again at the end of verse five. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. We know. Uh, This letter of 1 John keeps on saying, we know, we know. John wants certainty. He has certainty and he wants you to have it as well. God has given this because he wants us to know that we know him. He wants us to be more definite than our passing feelings and experiences that come and go. He wants it to be more clear than what our testimony story is like, which often is confused, isn't it? Because we look back and find it hard to figure ourselves out. He wants us to be able to see obedience in our lives and to say, I know that I belong to Jesus and have eternal life. God is a good God. He doesn't want his children left unsure, are they in the family? And that's why he gives us these tests. 
Now, we started very broad with a bit of a Bible study. What is one John doing and how do these verses fit in? We focused down a little more on what do these verses say. Now I want to focus in further. What is this obedience actually like? What's the obedience like? Because what I've said could prompt worries in you. Some Someone might be thinking, but I sin. I try not to, but I fail and I fall for sin. And then I find I do it again. Now, does that mean I'm not a real Christian? Does that mean I don't have eternal life? What I said could have prompted worries. What I've said could have prompted excuse making. Oh, no, that can't be right because we're just forgiven sinners. Of course, we still sin. We can't expect any different. We're just forgiven sinners. That's excuse making. So we need to ask, what is meant here by obeying God's commands? What is meant by walking as Jesus did? Does it mean getting things perfectly right? Or does it mean no more than that we're sorry for our sins? And then we just keep on doing them and we can't expect to have any success against them just as long as we're sorry for them. Well, let's consider a little what is meant by this obedience. Now, I like to drip feed into my sermons a bit of church history. I don't know if you've picked that up. I think it's worth knowing. Here's a little bit of church history for you. Here's someone worth knowing about. There was once a clever boy born in Paris So clever that at 11 or 12 years old, he went off to university. I wonder if we've got anyone listening who's around 11 or 12. He went to university at 11 or 12 years old. Very clever boy. He grew up and later in life, he got in trouble with the government. And he had to escape from them by someone lowering him out of a window on a rope they'd made out of bedsheets. And he had to go on the run from the government. And he ran from Paris, well, not literally ran, but he ran away to Geneva in Switzerland. And he only meant to stay there one night, but there was a rather fiery leader of a church in Switzerland, in Geneva, a forceful man who said to him, you must stay and you must become the minister of our church here. And he did. And he became a great church leader and a great teacher of the Bible. And he wrote many books about the Bible. And his name was John Calvin. And he said this about our verses. He wrote about 1 John 2 verses 3 to 6. And he said, John isn't talking about people who completely obey God's laws. Completely manage to keep God's laws. There is no such man apart from Jesus Christ. John means those who strive as much as we can with our human weakness to live our life in line with God's word. Now, I think that's really helpful. So I'm going to say that again to help you get it. This is what John Calvin said about these verses. John isn't talking about people who completely keep God's laws. There is no such man apart from Jesus Christ. John means those who strive as much as we can with our human weakness to live our life in line with God's word. Now, I think that's really helpful, but I I do think it needs to be changed a little. I I hope this doesn't sound too bad to disagree with John Calvin and think I can improve on what he said. That's really arrogant. But I do think, actually, 
you know, all men get some things wrong. And I, I think that actually what he said could be improved on. Because he said, those who strive to obey as much as our human weakness can manage. And he's right, but I think it needs to be added to. Because the Christian does have human weakness, but doesn't just have human weakness. The Christian also has the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us new birth. And the Holy Spirit changes our hearts. And the Holy Spirit doesn't then just leave us to get on with it. He stays with us and he gives power in our lives. And so the the Christian has this strange combination. We still have human weakness that causes us problems, but we also have the work of the spirit that gives us strength. And that's why the Christian life is a battle. It's not a battle for the unbeliever because they just have the sin. And it wouldn't be a battle if we didn't have human weakness. But because we have both human weakness and the Holy Spirit, there's a battle that goes on. Let's think about this battle a bit more because it will help us with understanding what this obedience is. We don't manage to obey perfectly because there are three enemies that hinder us. Those enemies are the flesh, the world and the devil. The flesh is the Bible's term for the sin that's still in us. It's still there. It's still down there in the dregs of your heart, sin. And it hinders us. Then we have an enemy the Bible calls the world. And that means human society against God. And that bombards us with temptation all the time. And then we have a third very cunning enemy called the devil. And he cunningly tries to trip us up. And he wants to set us against God and God against us. And all of those are still active. And so chapter 1 verse 8 tells us, and we must really register this, chapter 1 verse 8 tells us, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Because we've still got these three enemies and they still get at us. But... The gospel is powerful against all those three enemies. So the flesh is still present in us, but it's not in control. Chapter three, verse nine, three, verse nine. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, in Weeks time, we'll have to think about that verse. But for the moment, just notice the Christian has been born again. Sin is still present and troubling, but sin isn't in control. And then the world, oh, the world, we're still in it and we still get tripped up by it. But we have had our eyes opened to see what the world is really like. So chapter two, verse 15 to 17, we're people who don't love the world anymore. No, because we've seen verse 16, what it's like and it's sin. And we know verse 17 that it's passing away. And so we know to be on our guard against it. Doesn't mean we're immune to it, but we have been strengthened against it. And then what about the devil? Well, he's still around, but he's had his wings clipped. He's had his power neutered by Jesus at the cross. Chapter three, verse eight. He who does what is sinful 
is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning right from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. And that means we can overcome him. Chapter two, verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So do you see, we've got these three enemies, but the gospel gives us power against them. And all that means that the Christian still is in a battle. But the battle is not like the USA in Vietnam. What was it like for the USA in Vietnam? They poured in men and they poured in bombs, but the Viet Cong were too powerful and too clever for them. And whatever they poured in, they just kept losing. It was a losing battle. No, our battle is more like the Allies in Germany in early 1945. They still had to fight, but victory was assured and the enemy was losing. Victory was definite and coming. That's the sort of battle we're in. So the big print of the gospel is you can overcome sin. The small print is we don't manage it perfectly in this life. But I reckon that too often we take the small print, you don't manage it perfectly in this life, and we make it the big print. In fact, we make it the only print. And we often fail to see just how positive the gospel is and just how much it supplies us with. We tend to put all the emphasis on, oh, we'll still sin. Yeah, we're bound to sin. Just all the time we'll sin. We'll never be over sin. But the big emphasis shouldn't be there. That's the small print that we won't manage perfection here. The big emphasis should be God has given you all you need to overcome sin. Now use it. Our problem is we often don't use it. So what I'm trying to do here is an appeal for realistic optimism in the Christian life. Realistic. Not like the perfectionists who are all miserable because they know they haven't managed what they think they should. But optimism. Not self-fulfilling defeatism. Which I reckon we have quite a lot of. A defeatism that is self-fulfilling. What happens if the athlete lines up for the race and expects to lose? He lines up for the race, but he thinks it's no good. There's no way I'll win. Well, he's lost before he started. Because his psychology is such that he won't put in all the effort he could. Even if he thinks he's pushing himself, he isn't really as much as he could. Because the defeatist attitude is, it will affect him. But we have reason to confidently fight off sin. We have reason, whenever temptation comes, to throw everything at it that the gospel gives us. And if in a battle you fail and sin, well, go to 1 John 1 verse 9. Confess your sins. God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And then pick up your sword again and carry on fighting, expecting to win. What do you expect the Christian life to be like? What do you expect in the area of sin and obedience? Well, I hope you've seen the answer from Chapter two, verses three to six. 
because it does give us the answer. It's an answer that should show up if you do or do not have eternal life. So if you don't, if you don't, then face up to it. Don't sweep that aside. It's too serious to sweep aside. Face up to it. And as Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock and keep on knocking until God has given you that eternal life. And if you do have that eternal life, well, rejoice, be reassured and confidently walk as Jesus did.